Good morning. Today we'll be reading Ephesians 6, verses 10 through 17. Hear the word of the Lord. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you, be, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Stand therefore having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on, put on the breastplate of righteousness. And as shoes for your feet, having put on readiness given by the gospel of peace, in all circumstances take up the shield of faith with which you, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. That'd be great. God, we thank you for Kevin. We ask you to fill him with your glory as he speaks to us. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. We are um, we're looking at this last, one of the last passages in Ephesians. And we've, you know, Paul is showing us that the Christian life is a fight. Um you know, a lot of us become Christians because we're, <laughs> we, want str we want the struggle to get easier and less severe. And in so many ways it does, but in, in some significant ways, um, following Jesus puts us into a battle that we were totally asleep to before, and now we're awakened to it. And we're, we're in a battle um, with uh, a foe who is powerful, cunning, evil, uh, spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places, powers and principalities, the devil himself. And um, what I've kind of been trying to show us uh, through, this, um, through this little series is that spiritual warfare is, is just basic Christianity. Like it's, it's, not, it's not often spectacular that, um, that it's often mundane and kind of boring. I, I think I said it at one point they're like 99% of the time that the devil comes at you, it's, it's not going to be through like attack, but it's just going to be like in subtle ways, like deception and lies and uh, temptation and accusation. And I, I really believe that's true, um, but there's still that 1%. And uh, <laughs> I was reminded of this amazing incident that happened in Texas back in August. I read this from the internet, so it's true. Um, Peggy was riding a mower in the back of her property far from the tree line when, quote, all of a sudden, out of the clear blue sky, a snake fell and landed on my arm, the 64-year-old recalled. There was no mistaking it. The reptile was dark-colored and four and a half feet long. Uh, the story goes on. The snake falls from the sky. It latches onto her arm. She's shaking it around. She's trying to get the snake off. It's biting her repeatedly on her arm. It's like wrapping itself around her arm. And just when she thinks that things couldn't possibly get worse, do any of you all know this story? <laughs> this hawk 
swoops down and starts attacking the snake, but in the process of attacking the snake is, of course, like slapping her in the face with its wings, bite like her, its talons are gripping into her forearm. Um, four times it leaves and then flies back to attack the snake. Each time the snake is like just, you know, freaking out and attacking her. And I don't know, that just seems like the devil. Uh, like, you could, you could maybe account for that with some kind of materialistic explanation of just, you know, wrong place, wrong time. But no, let's get real. Like a snake falling from the sky and then attacking you and then a hawk attacking you. So sometimes um, spiritual warfare is incredibly intense and it makes you want to, like, the next time you mow your yard, you want to suit up. You want to suit up in not metaphorical armor, but like real armor. Anyway, I just, I was reminded of that story this past week and thought, um, I thought you might find it as amusing and horrifying as I do. <laughs> Paul says that we do have protection against the devil's attack, that we have resources. And so that's what we're looking at now, these different pieces of armor, the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness. And this morning, I want to focus on verses 15 and 16, where Paul mentions the shoes and the shield. The shoes and the shield. And I want to get at, at this by um, talking about the promise of peace, the problem of these flaming darts, flaming arrows, and the power of the shield. You know, sometimes alliteration helps us to remember. So the promise of peace the problem of the flaming arrows and the power of the shield. So the promise of peace, you know, Paul tells us that as shoes, we have readiness given by the gospel of peace. The gospel of peace. Like he's, he's showing us that peace is central to what the good news is all about. Um, so much so that Paul can say that the good news is simply good news of peace or good news about peace. Remember in the Old Testament, the word for peace, shalom, uh, it's a really rich word. It's, it's about so much more than the absence of hostility or about some inner state of calm. Peace is, is about flourishing, like our relationships with God being right, with each other, with um, the rest of the world, the rest of creation. Peace is about flourishing and wholeness and delight. It's a way of talking about the way things are supposed to be, like shalom. Uh, we get a glimpse of it in the opening of the Bible with Adam and Eve in the garden, you remember that? Um, like they're, for some time, we don't know how long, maybe like a few seconds, they're thriving in their relationship with God and with each other and with the world. Um, but it doesn't last, and you know the story. Like humanity rebels against God, and we, we stop trusting his love. We rebel against his grace. Uh, we, we decide to go our own way apart from him. And as a result of that um, distrust and rebellion, like shalom, this peace that God intends for his good world begins to unravel and come apart. And, and things get so bad as you read the Bible's story that by the time we get to Genesis 6, we read that like every intention of the human heart is always evil all the time. And so things just like get progressively worse. And then there you remember we get the story of Noah and the flood, which is... Um, <laughs> You know, it's, it's a story that we read to kids, which like, might want to question the wisdom of that. I mean, it's a, it's a really disturbing story, isn't it? Uh, like God um, cleansing the world, healing the world, but doing it by destroying, uh, like, every, almost everyone, almost everything. 
But after those waters subside, we get another glimpse of shalom. The world has been cleansed. It looks again um, like things are as they should be. And you remember that God speaks a word of peace. He speaks a word of peace. He promises never again to destroy the earth. Uh, he makes a covenant with the animals and with Noah. And, and you remember, he gives us a sign of his covenant. And what's the sign? The rainbow. Yeah. And so uh, the story of Noah and the flood, as troubling as it is, it helps us to see how desperately we need peace. I mean, if we're against God, or worse, if God is against us, then we really don't have much hope at all. Well, earlier in Ephesians, um, Paul tells us that um, like, peace is something that is accomplished. It's something that, that God has accomplished for us in Jesus. He says this. He says, remember that you were at one time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants and promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, he says, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace. Jesus Christ himself is our peace. Jesus is our peace. And the implications of that are vast. Um, most importantly, it means that God is for us and not against us. God is for us and not against us. Uh, that's what Paul says in Romans. He says, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So family, God is not our enemy. Uh, God does not see us as his enemies. Because of Jesus, Paul says, um, we have access in one spirit to the Father. Well, what does any of that have to do with standing against the devil's schemes? Anyone who wants to stand in battle needs uh, traction, right? You need the right footwear. You need footwear that can catch hold of the ground you're standing on and uh, keep you rooted so that you're not just slipping and sliding every which way when you're trying to stand firm. And Paul is saying, um, this is what will give you the traction that you need. It is shoes made ready by the gospel of peace. Like somehow um, the reality of the peace that Jesus has accomplished for us helps us to stand firm. It helps us not to slip and slide all over the place. So how, do, how does that work? How does the good news of peace give us traction in our battle with the enemy? Well, remember that the devil would love us to think that uh, our enemy is, is pretty much anyone but him. So he, he would have us think that our enemy is one another, um, that there is still this dividing wall of hostility between us, or the devil would love for us to think that our real enemy is God and that God is really against us. But the gospel of peace helps us to remember who the real enemy is. It's not God. It's not one another. It's like Paul is saying, you won't stand for a second if you forget the good news of peace, like shalom, shalom. Uh, God has reconciled us to himself in Christ, and he has reconciled us to one another in Christ. And so, and so God's not the enemy, and we're not the enemy. Now, the gospel of peace announces this as an accomplished fact. And it also holds out, for the, it holds out to us the promise that like one day, uh, like we're going to see the fullness and the completion of that. Like one day, everything will really be as it should be. One day, shalom will be our full reality. But for now, we still have an enemy. It's not God. It's not one another. 
but it's the devil, spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And this enemy shoots flaming darts at us. And this is a problem. It's a problem. Uh, it's a problem, I mean, for one thing, just because it's really hard to hang on to the gospel of peace when at the same time uh, flaming darts are flying at you. There's this uh, disconnect between what's declared to be true and real and your experience. It sure doesn't feel like peace when you're under attack. Um, it's also a problem because uh, the flaming darts themselves can be really ambiguous things. And, and one way to get at, at this is just to think about some of the ways that Scripture talks about fire. You know, in the Old Testament, fire is often linked up to the power and presence and purposes of God. Just think, remember with me some of the ways we see this. Like um, Genesis chapter 15, you remember that? amazing story. Oh, we should, we should look at this story again before long. It's so amazing where God puts Abraham into that deep sleep and, uh, and then, he, well, he has, him, he has him divide, like cut all these animals in half and he makes the aisle and then he makes Abraham go to sleep and then God processes down the aisle and he does it as like this smoking fire pot. It says, like, it, you know, there's, there's fire there. Like he, he does it as fire. He's going down the aisle. God appears to Moses in, in a flame of fire in the burning bush. Remember, that's how he reveals himself to Moses. Um, when God leads his people uh, out of slavery and oppression in Egypt, how does he do it? Yeah, pillar of fire uh, by night, cloud by day. In Jeremiah, God says, Is not my word like fire and like a hammer that breaks the rock in pieces? Uh, Deuteronomy tells us that our God simply is what? Do you remember? Our God is consuming fire yeah and um when god gives the holy spirit to the church at pentecost uh what's that tongues of flaming fire it's just like over and over again um god is showing up as fire like i mean we could keep adding example after example about this connection and so you read the bible and it's just very easy to get the impression that god is the lord of fire right that it's like all fire is god's fire and so, why in the world are fiery darts flying at us? You see, it's like our enemy, the devil, is trying to use God against us. It's like he's, he's taking something that's meant for good, and he's twisting it, and he's using it for evil. It's like, it's like the fire that he uses as stolen fire. You see, family, his goal is to confuse, and it's easy to get confused. I mean... Our God is a consuming fire, and here come the fiery darts. Paul doesn't tell us exactly uh, what these flaming arrows are. They, they seem to kind of stand for anything and everything that the devil might throw our way, like all the attacks he brings against us, like, like maybe the snake just falling from the sky while you're riding, riding your lawnmower is a fiery dart, but maybe, maybe the word that is spoken by someone who you... Um, who you, you know somehow loves you, but the word hurts. It's like maybe the devil is in that as, maybe that's a flaming dart. Like it's just anything and everything that all the ways the devil wants to mess with us. Um, wouldn't it be nice if we could recognize all the attacks as pure evil? 
And wouldn't it, wouldn't it be nice if all the enemy's lies just had like the obvious feel of falsehood? But that's just not the way the devil rolls. Uh, he does use stolen fire. The flames he throws at us are good that's been twisted and that's been warped. And um, the most dangerous lies he tells are always lies that have some ring of truth. Like evil is parasitic. It's, it's unoriginal. Uh, it gets its life from God's good world. I mean, the devil can even take the fire of God's word and fashion it into flaming arrows meant to harm. Right? That's, remember, how he comes at Jesus in the desert. Um, he's, he's quoting scripture. I mean, is he speaking truth? Well, he's quoting scripture. Um, but truth out of context, and you know this, can be false. And so he's like taking pieces of truth and he's using them for evil. Those are flaming arrows, flaming darts. I think these darts come at us in all kinds of ways. I mean, two real broad general areas where we're likely to experience them coming at us. Um, one is just in the whole realm of suffering in all its various forms. You know, sometimes the devil, I figure, like straight up causes suffering. Sometimes, but not always, right? Like sometimes faithfulness to Jesus brings suffering. And sometimes we suffer simply because we're part of a world that still groans and waits for the return of its king. And so much of the time, it's just impossible to pinpoint any satisfying reason for our suffering at all. But regardless of like what causes our suffering or how it's coming at us, we can be sure that the devil wants to take our suffering and fashion it into fiery darts to, to use against us and to weaken our trust in God. And so like, you know, we'll hear things like, if God really cared about you, he wouldn't let this happen to you. Or if God really loved you, you would, you would not be feeling this kind of heat. And because you do feel the heat, because this is happening to you, God must be against you. See, there is no peace. This must be his judgment. See, those are fiery darts. Here's another area where we feel the fiery darts. Um, just in the area of, of sin and the accusation and condemnation and the shame that the devil can introduce into our lives um, about our sinfulness. And so we hear like you've done wrong and the devil underscores that and highlights that. And so obviously there's no peace between you and God. Otherwise, why would you be rebelling against him? Uh, you're still against God, and so God must be against you. And if he hasn't judged you yet, it's just because he's storing it up and saving it for the end. Or maybe it's not that you've done wrong, but just that you are wrong. Like, you have this deep sense that... Um, this deep, deep sense of shame that you carry with you. And, and who knows what the roots of it are? I mean, the roots could be anything. You know your story better than I do. But um, the devil will take that, that shame, and will fashion it um, into a fiery dart to hurt you, to do you harm. And the goal behind each of these fiery darts is, is I think, to reinforce, like, one basic conviction that God cannot be trusted. Uh, that, that he can't be trusted with your life and that he can't be trusted with the life of the world. I mean... We remember that promise that God 
will not destroy the world again with a flood, but then we think, okay, well, maybe it is the fire next time, right? Like maybe it is just a thousand or how, however many flaming darts it would take to destroy the world. Paul says, in all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. I don't know, kids, uh, what, you, what you imagine when you imagine the shield of faith. I mean, I, I tend to think Captain America uh, with his impenetrable shield. But it turns out that um, this is not a Captain America-sized shield, which is like that nice circle. Um, no, this is like a person-sized shield. It was over four feet long, over two feet wide. And so it's basically like a, maybe a hobbit-sized door, you could think. Um, oh, except they're circular, aren't they? This is a, re this is a rectangle. Uh, these ancient shields were made of wood, and then they were covered in leather. And before battle, the Roman soldier would soak the shield in water. Uh, and, and that was key because then the soldiers could actually use, use their shields to extinguish the fiery darts that their enemies would shoot at them. The flaming arrows would go into the wet shield. The fire would go out. The devil would love for us to think um, that God is the one shooting these fiery darts at us. I mean, after all, God is the Lord of fire. Our God is a consuming fire. Uh, like God is the master archer. The devil would have us believe we need a shield to defend ourselves against God. But family, God is not your enemy. Um, God said, this is the sign of the covenant. I am making between me and you and every living creature with you a covenant for all generations to come. I have set my rainbow in the clouds and it will be the sign of the covenant between me and the earth. Whenever I bring clouds over the earth and the rainbow appears in the clouds, I will remember my covenant between me and you and all living creatures of every kind. Now there's no question that that is talking about a rainbow. Uh, but what's interesting is that uh, the Hebrew word does not mean rainbow. Um, and, and some of our translations are bringing this out. Like the Hebrew just means bow. And bow means like bow and arrow, bow. Uh, and so literally what God is saying is this is the sign of the covenant I'm making with you. I have laid up my bow. Laid it up in the, up in the clouds. Um, and, and so the, the picture is, is of a warrior taking... The, the weapon of his warfare and setting it aside. And saying, I'm not going to use this anymore. And when you see it, when you see it hung up, remember, remember this promise that I've made not to destroy you, not to destroy the world. Um, I mean, that's, that's why the rainbow is such a powerful sign of God's promise. Such a powerful sign of God's promise not to destroy the earth in judgment. I mean, when the storms of life come, we see the bow and we remember that the Lord has put aside his weapon. Like he is not the one shooting at you. He's not the one shooting at you. Um, Paul means what he says when he declares that we have peace with God. Well, if he's not the one shooting the arrows, like where is God when all of those arrows fly? You know, all over the Old Testament, God is likened to a shield. 
Proverbs 30 tells us that every word of God proves true. He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. In Genesis, God tells Abraham, fear not, I am your shield. Again and again, the Psalms declare that God is a shield. And, and we've already said um, in, in earlier weeks that putting on the armor is basically the same as putting on the Lord Jesus Christ. But, but family, do you see what that means? Um, like, how does a shield protect you from arrows? It protects you by taking all the arrows into itself, right? Um, and, and this is the mystery of God's grace. This is how God accomplishes peace. He hangs up his war bow, and he becomes a shield. Like, our, our shield isn't just a person-sized shield. It is a person. The world is full of fiery darts, and the devil slings them, and sometimes we play right into his hand. I mean, we pick up our own little bows, and we shoot fiery darts at each other, and sometimes we even shoot them at God. And what does God do? Um, he does what all good shields do. He receives it. And he absorbs it. And he takes like all of the evil uh, into himself and onto himself. And he bears it. And he deals with it. I mean, he does, in an ultimate way, extinguish those flames. And he does this for you. And he does this for me. And the enemy would have us think that God can't be trusted um, he would have us think that God's judgment is about to fall at any moment. That his flaming arrows could rain down at any moment. But family, look at the cross. Um, God takes the arrows. Do you see it? God takes the arrows. And, and you can trust a God who loves you like this. You can trust a God who loves you like this. He's not shooting at you. He has hung up his war bow. And so he's your belt and he's your breastplate and he is your shoes and your shield. And then the invitation is to put them on, to put on the Lord Jesus Christ, to take up the shield of faith, to trust the gospel of peace. And um, remember that, especially in our culture, it's so easily, it's so easy to turn that into an individualistic pursuit, something that just happens between you and God. But also remember that like the way the Romans went into war with these shields is they created walls and they created boxes so that like they had a roof so that when the snake falls from the sky, it just like slithers off the top of their shields. Um, we need each other. We need each other. I just got back from meeting with a, a covenant group, a group of... Um, other pastors who I've been meeting with now for a decade. And we don't meet often, but when we meet, um, there's always um, a depth of sharing that is unusual for me. And we, we, we have shared our stories with each other before, but um, we spent a day and a half just sharing our stories and listening to one another's stories. And in all of those stories, and, and part of it, I think, is because we've, we've grown to trust each other. Our relationships have deepened. 
um, we were more vulnerable than we had been, and we shared um, we shared areas of deep pain, of deep brokenness, of deep uh, wounding, of ways that the fiery darts have done great harm in our lives. And we were also able to see in so many instances, and sometimes it took uh, each other to help us see like how God, um, because he is the Lord of fire, can take even fiery darts and like weave them into this um, bigger tapestry that's really good to, to totally confuse metaphors. I mean, I guess a <laughs> flame would burn a tapestry, but you have to just imagine the flaming arrows being woven into a, a much greater, um, a much greater good. And that was healing. It was healing for me just in like a day of sharing with brothers in Christ uh, to hear their stories, to share mine. Um, we don't always see how God's doing that. I mean, there were times where we just had to acknowledge, yeah, we don't know how in the world God's going to weave this one into his good plan. Um, but just to trust for each other that it, that it will happen, that it will happen. And so I guess I share that just to say, um, do that. Do that for one another. Um, let each other in in those ways. Don't try to defend against the fiery darts yourself. 